beautiful singing. So I've not met you. My name is Aaron, and uh, we're delighted you're with us today. And um, it's just good to be uh, together. So we had an awesome week this week at VBS. And I feel like every year I just say the same thing. I love VBS. And this year I feel like I just my love just continues to grow. So I really appreciate Janet and Bethany and so many others who just gave us this week. I mean, what an incredible gift for our church family uh, to have that. And I know some are here visiting today because of VBS, and so we really are delighted uh, that you're with us. Uh, let me also mention that's not the only good news that we had this week. Uh, Sarah and Anil had their baby. And so, yeah, so a baby boy named David. And so Anil's over there, so make sure uh, you congratulate him and then be kind of on the lookout for um, uh, uh, hopefully a meal train that we can get started for them uh, as they need it. And Anil's family is uh, visiting with uh is visiting us today from India, so please make sure you say hi to them as well. Okay, so all that being said, if you have a Bible with you, open up to 1 Samuel. Today our text of study will come from chapter 22. And if you don't have a Bible with you, no problem. There should be Bibles um, on the pew where you're sitting. If you want to grab one of those, open it up. Uh, 1 Samuel is like maybe in the first quarter or so of the Bible. It's kind of in the beginning portion of it. If you can find um, your way there, it's a little bit larger book for Samuel. As mentioned, we're going to be in chapter 22 today. We're going to be working through the entire passage, but I'm just going to read here just the first five verses of the text. And then after I get done reading uh, the sacred text, then I'm going to pray, ask for the Lord's blessing this time, and then uh, we will uh, get to work. So 1 Samuel 22. Okay, so please hear the words of the Lord. So the Bible says, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. Then he left them with the king of Moab, and he stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. And the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold, depart, and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went to the forest of Hereth. Okay, so that's God's word for us this morning. Would you please pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your holy word. And Lord, we're here this morning believing that you do speak through your word to us through the power of your spirit. So, God, I pray that you would help me to be a good communicator of your word. Help me to not be a distraction. I pray that, indeed, you would speak. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we all know that at times, that at face value, we can really appreciate something. But then if we learn a little bit of the backstory, like our appreciation uh, only grows. So let me give you an example of this from front, which is the famous hymn, It Is Well. So, so I love all the verses of this famous hymn, but let me just read you verse 1. So when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul, which is the chorus. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Hey, it's a great song, a song that we actually do love to sing here at Red Village Church. But what makes this song so great is not just the face value of the song, but what makes this song so great is the backstory tied to it. 
It's a backstory that I'm sure some of you here know, but not all of us. So because of that, let me just share that story with you, the backstory of It Is Well With My Soul. So this hymn was written in the 1870s by a man named Horatio uh, Sabford. And he was a one-time successful lawyer, but yet he went through financial ruin that coincided with the great Chicago fire. However, even though he lost so much, Horatio kept his faith in Christ. And he kept his faith to the point that he planned to help the famous evangelist D.L. Moody on a campaign, evangelistic campaign, that Moody was about to do in England. So Sadford made plans that he and his family would make the trip together across the ocean. However, last-minute changes came, and so uh, Horatio had to stay behind, where Anna, his wife Anna, and four daughters actually boarded the ship and set sail for England. And while the ship was sailing across the ocean, a tragedy struck. And the ship that Anna and the daughters were on collided with a different sea vessel. And the damage to the ship was so great that it began to sink rapidly. Because of how rapidly it happened, tragically, not all survived the shipwreck. Some died at sea that day, including some from Sabinford's family. In fact, the only survivor was his wife, Anna. All four daughters died. Can you imagine that? What an awful tragedy. So as Anna, as she was rescued, she gets back to land. She sent a famous telegraph to her husband to tell the awful news, a telegraph that just simply said, saved alone. Well, shortly after receiving the telegraph, Horatio was able to find a ship to cross the Atlantic to get to his grieving wife. And as his ship passed where his daughters died by shipwreck, he wrote the famous words to the hymn that I just read for you. It is well. It is well. It is well with my soul. Great song. That's even greater when we understand the backstory tied to it. Now, I tell you all this... This morning, to let you know that today, as we turn to our study of 1 Samuel, after the multiple week that, uh, break week that we've been on, or, um, we're in the midst of a backstory for some of the famous psalms that David wrote, that many throughout church history have loved and appreciated. But some of these psalms, I think, only add to our appreciation and love when we connect the backstory to the psalms to what actually was happening in David's life. For the sake of time, I can't read you all of the psalms that are written. In, in this section of 1 Samuel that we are in, but let me just read you a few verses from a few different psalms that have this as a backstory. And as I read these for you, just file these away as we work through our text today in 1 Samuel 22, which we can get to in just a second here. So here are a few lines from Psalm 59, which is written during a passage we actually already went through in 1 Samuel 19. David wrote this. He said, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who seek, who, are, who work evil. Save me from bloodthirsty men, for behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men, strife upon strife against me. And here be lines from Psalm 27, which was potentially written during our text today. They wrote this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries, my foes, it is they who will stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. Psalm 52, which is also accredited to the exact time of the events that happened in our text today in 1 Samuel 22. Um, 22. So Psalm 52 says this. It says, Why do you boast about evil, O mighty men? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good. And lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour an old deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. 
suspension. Keep these words in mind today as we get to our text. As at the end of our sermon here today, as we get to some applications of 1 Samuel 22, I think these psalms written actually can help be a guide for how to apply a passage like this. Now, because it's been several weeks from last we were in this book, let me quickly set the context of where we left off. So you may remember a man named Saul was chosen by the people to be their king, and he was a king after their own heart. And as they uh, put Saul over them as king, this is actually a rejection of God being their king. And this is a rejection of God being their king for many reasons, including the fact that Saul came from the tribe of Benjamin, even though the Lord had previously promised in his word that one day he would indeed appoint a king, but that king would come from the tribe of Judah. The rejection of God and his word is a bit of a cyclical theme that we see throughout 1 Samuel, which is always leading to God's people to more and more disaster. That being said, at the start of Saul's reign, he actually was doing pretty well, as you may remember. In short, disaster did not come right away because uh, he actually was well, doing pretty well. But his own pride, his own insecurities, his desire for control, his desire for power, eventually would get the best of him. So in fairly short order, he began to do more and more, which was not in line with God's word, which culminated in Saul giving an unlawful sacrifice. And this act was so egregious in the sight of the Lord that the Lord rejected Saul as king. And he removed his empowering spirit from Saul. And as the Lord rejected Saul, he appointed a man named David to be king. A man after God's own heart. A man who did indeed come from the tribe of Judah, as the Lord had promised in his word. And as David is appointed to be king, providentially, David is even placed into Saul's court to be a minister of grace to Saul. So you may remember in our study this spring, we've seen how Saul faced torments from God because of his sinful actions. So David would come and play a heart for Saul that would be uh, like a soothing balm for Saul and his uh, torment that was going on in his heart. However, even though David was kind to King Saul and did many other things that benefited King Saul, over time Saul became more and more jealous of David. And as Saul became sinfully jealous, he also became paranoid towards David, which led Saul to becoming more and more aggressive in attempts to try to keep his power that led Saul to become more and more overcome with evil, sinful, bitter desires to actually kill David. So that's where we actually left off several weeks back in 1 Samuel 21, where David was on the run, trying to escape Saul's sword. And as he was on the run, one of Saul's henchmen, who we'll see actually later in our text today, spotted David after David was trying to find safety among the priests in a location called Nob, which we'll see come back in play uh, today in our text. So with that backstory from running through our text today, look back at me starting in verse 1. And if you have a Bible open, keep them open. All I'm going to do for us is just walk us verse by verse through the passage and try to explain what is happening. So starting in verse 1. So we said, after David had departed from there, and there is referring to a place called Gath, which also, if you remember, was is the home of Goliath, the great enemy of God, the great enemy, um, the Philistines. Goliath was the giant who David struck down. And as David fled to Gath, he was trying to get away from the henchmen of Saul, who he spotted in Nob when David was with the priest. And as he fled from Gath, we see in the text, he found refuge in a cave of Adullam, which is about 10 miles to the east of Gath, which was an area located in the region where Saul actually was originally from, which probably communicates a little bit to us how much of a panic David is in during this scene. Now, to go back to what was mentioned a few weeks back in chapter 21, David is such a panic trying to get away from Saul, he thought the best place for safety for him was to seek refuge in Gath, right, the home of his enemies who deeply hated them. Now from there, he tries to find refuge in the heart of where Saul was from, hiding out in the cave. 
Now, for us, it might be easy to question David's wisdom here, but I do think we can understand when things are like falling down, crashing around us, it's not always easy to make good, wise decisions. That's why it's so important for us to be in community, which we'll talk about more, especially when things are going difficult for us. Like we need others to help us to make good, wise decisions. Back to the text. As David arrived at the cave, we read that his family was made aware of his whereabouts. So we read that his brothers and the rest of his father's household went to be with David in the cave. I'm sure to check in on David to see how he was doing. And in verse 2, we see that not only was their family the only ones who came to David, we also see that others wanted to be around him as well. We read that everyone who is in distress, in debt, bitter in soul, speaking specifically towards Saul, they also came to David. And this year, this little group of people, they, they had enough of Saul, these people here who came to David. Right? They were miserable because of how Saul was leading Israel. Right? They're becoming more and more crippled by the taxes that Saul was implementing on them. And much like today, when political officials lead poorly, society starts to become bitter towards their leaders. And, and they want new leaders in place over them. So that's what this group here is doing. They're, they're coming to David to meet him in the cave because they are done with Saul. And as they came to the cave, it seems like this group here seemed to recognize that David being the true anointed king from 1 Samuel 16. And I think we get the sense that they recognize David as being the king because we see that all this ragtag group, which is about 400 or so, our text tells us, they came and they made David to be the commander over them. Even though this is a relatively small number of people, 400, who joined forces with David, as they swore their political and military allegiance to him, this puts a wind back in David's sails. Uh, this action here puts a shot of encouragement that no doubt he needed. Maybe some healing balm for his weary and discouraged soul. Right? This is also what community does for us. Right? When done properly, it's such a powerful thing in our lives that God uses to strengthen us, to encourage us, which is something we talked about last week and talk about more in just a bit. In our text, as the community came around David to support David, we see that he felt so encouraged that rather than just hiding out in the cave for the rest of his days in isolation, we see in verse 3 that he gets up and he travels even more east, this time east of the Jordan River into the land of Moab and the city of Mizpah. And he goes here, I think, to like circle the wagons a bit, uh, to get some needed rest, to get right, uh, to recharge, to try to figure out what to do from there. By the way, a point of interest on some of the backstory of Moab. So David's great-grandma was from Moab, a name that some of you will know from the Bible. Ruth. Remember that story? One of the great heroes of the Old Testament, Ruth? This is where she's from. She's from Moab. So in the text, as David gets to Moab, we see that he went and found the king. And he goes and asks the king if he and his family could be basically be like refugees looking for asylum from Saul and hide out in Moab. And let the king know that his desire is to stay in Moab until he can understand what the Lord wanted to do with him from there, which is why I think he wants to go to Moab. He's trying to get right. He's trying to get rest so he can go back at it to do what the Lord would have him to do. And as David made this request to the king of Moab, we see the king agreed. So in verse 4 of our passage, you want to take your eyes there. For an extended period of time, David is protected by the king where he's able to dwell in the residence of the stronghold, which I think here is specifically relating to Mizpah, where David was able to get rest that he finally, uh, that he really needed. However, at the expended period of time, the period of rest God gave for him, 
I'm sure, emotional, mental, physical, spiritual rest. In verse 5, we see that it was now time for David to go back to doing what the Lord had for him. And the Lord made this clear to David by sending to him, a text tells us, a prophet named Gad. Now, we don't know much about Gad. Outside, he's listed a couple other places in Scripture as well. So if we keep reading in Samuel, we get to 2 Samuel 24. You may remember the story from that chapter. This is where God was punishing David for a prideful census that David took over the kingdom. So it was Gad who came to David to give David three choices on how he wanted to be disciplined by the Lord. Gad is also mentioned at the end of 1 Chronicles 29, where it seemed like he had a pretty important role in David's life. In our text today, as Gad came to David, we see that he had a message from the Lord for David, which was a message that the time of rest and refuge in Moab had reached its end. And it was time for David to get back, to leave the stronghold, and head back to Judah. In a very real sense, to head back into danger. Which, by the way, is also sometimes something that we might need to hear. So yes, we do need rest, we do need restoration, but that rest and restoration is not meant to be permanent. Right? The intended purpose to rest and restoration is so we can get back up. So at times, we actually might need someone like Gad to come do that for us. So in the text, that's what Gad did for David. David, the Lord's desire is to use you in Judah. So, so it's time to get back to the kingdom work at hand. So the text tells us, David gets up, he departed from Moab, and he goes into the forest of Hereth, which is an area at this point is unknown to history, the exact location of it. But because it's a forest, this would probably be an ideal location for David to set up shop in ways that he could like still kind of hide from Saul, well, at least hide for a while. As you see in verse 6 of the text, we're going to take your eyes there, that eventually David and his band of men who were with him were discovered. They were spotted hiding out in the forest. And as they were spotted, as you would guess, word eventually made its way back to Saul, where David was generally located. And as this word gets back to Saul, we see in the text, it appears to happen when Saul was doing some type of like business as king. And it appears that this is when, king was doing, or when Saul was doing his kingly business, because our text tells us in verse 6 that Saul was in Gibeah, which is where he was originally from, and he was under a teramask tree, which would have been an outdoor location, obviously, for a tree, outdoor location to accommodate a large number of people to do business. And Saul being under this tree was uh, actually a symbolic of like some type of worship, which goes back to chapter 21 of Genesis, uh, Genesis where Abraham, who in his worship of God, planted a tree. So in the text of Saul was under the tree. We see that he has a spear in his hand, which symbolizes his kingly authority. And we see as he was sitting on the tree with the spear in hand, we see his servants were all around to further make this official kingly business. So in the text, as Saul is performing the royal business, news came to his attention about David and where he was hiding. So naturally, Saul wanted to address his servants with this new information. We see in the text how he chose to address this meeting was through a series of rhetorical questions for his servants that I think we can assume he asked with an explosive tone, an explosive tone filled with deep anger and deep frustration. So in the text, Hear now, people of Benjamin, Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you commanders of thousands and hundreds? With the implied answer from Saul's vantage point of no. right? David would not do that for the servants. I think also these questions seem to apply that this was something that Saul was actually attempting to do for the servants. There's no doubt this is why Saul was justifying himself and his actions. 
So the text, people of Benjamin with the applied answers to my questions that prove that David is nowhere good a king as I am, a king who's been so good to you, in verse 8 of our text, then why are all you going to conspire against me for, for this man, for David? Tell me then, why is it no one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse? Now, this covenant here that Saul was talking about, this is a reference to chapter 18, and the covenant David's um, son Jonathan, or uh, Saul's son Jonathan made with David, a covenant where Saul's son would be loyal to David, a, a covenant that in more than one occasion Saul actually, or uh, Jonathan kept as he helped David from harm from Saul. So in our text, you know, why did no one tell me this? Why do none of you feel sorry for me to have a son like this? Why do I got to deal with him? Tell me, why did no one disclose to me that my son Jonathan stirred up David against me to go now lie in wait in the forest as it is this day? It does not take a lot of interpretation skills in our text here. They see that Saul, like he's not happy. He is stirred up. He's fired up. Saul is angry, frustrated. And as Saul rebukes his servants for not being as loyal to him as he clearly thought he was to them, I think Saul here is trying to stir up their emotions to like try to win them to his side so that they would get behind Saul in his quest to kill David. As he's doing this, he's trying to stir him up to his side. I'm sure he's also trying to get additional information to see if anyone knows about David's whereabouts. If that's his intention in the text. You see that he actually was successful. As we see in verse 9, Dueg, the Edomite, was there. He was standing by the servants of Saul. And he responds back to Saul with words that I'm sure the king loved to hear. Now, if you've been with us in our study of First Samuel, this name, Dueg, might be a name you might remember. We actually met him this spring in our last sermon in the series before the extended break. So as mentioned earlier, David is on the run from Saul, and he sought refuge among the priests, starting with a priest named Ahimelech, who agreed to provide for David through the use of temple grain so that David could eat and be uh, nourished there. And he also gave to David Goliath's sword. Well, on that, at that day, at that scene, in Nob, the henchman that I referred to earlier, this was Duig, the Edomite, a man who was not part of Israel, but he was part of Saul's inner circle. But he was there that same day that David was in Nob. And because it's not a huge place, clearly these two men spotted each other, which I mentioned earlier, put David back on the run, because he knew what kind of man this Duig was, which we actually get to see as well, starting in verse 9 of our text, if you want to take your eyes there. Where we read Duig responds back to Saul, uh, Yeah, I saw David, the son of Jesse. Uh, I actually saw him back at the temple over in Nob. And so I've got to tell you, that I actually saw him there with Ahimelech, the son of Adatub. And as I spotted David, I actually witnessed David go to Ahimelech, and Ahimelech inquire of the Lord on David's behalf. And you know what? I actually saw the priest give David some food to eat, and even the sword of Goliath. So yeah, I saw him. In the text, in short, right, he snitched. Right? He rats David out. And as Saul hears this news, we see in verse 11, that he clearly believed Duwak's story. So like immediately he summons Ahimelech the priest. And now that he's summoned like the priest, he actually summons all the priests of Nob to come before him. And as he comes, as the priests come before Saul, you can kind of say like Saul's about ready to put him on trial. But this is a trial that no doubt the king already had his verdict uh, decided. 
It's in text, verse 12. You want to take your eyes there. As Ahimelech, the son of Hetub, stood before the king, saw waste no time. Ahimelech, uh, yes, here I am, Lord. Uh, tell me, why have you conspired against me? Why did you give to David, the son of Jesse, bread and a sword? Tell me, why did you inquire of the Lord for him? Why, why would you do that? Do you know what you did? You are now enabled, David, to rise up against me and now lie in wait this day. I think here, this is a continued furious tone that Saul has towards the priests. I also think this is we can see, this is how paranoid Saul was of David hiding out in the forest. Like he brings this up again in the text. Like he's paranoid, he's frantic, that at some point David's like, jump out behind a tree in the forest to kill him. So the text is the king brought the charges to the priest. The priest was given time to respond, which he did in verse 14, if you want to take your eyes there. He responds fairly boldly, at least in, in part. Uh, king, I know you've been asking some questions recent. How about this? Can I, can I ask you some questions now? Uh, who among all of your servants is as faithful as David? And let me also ask, who is the king's son-in-law? Which you're just joining us today. It actually was David. David married one of Saul's daughters. And king, who is the captain over your bodyguard who is so honored in your house that everyone likes him? Answer me, king. Is it not David? Verse 15. And furthermore, king, can I ask, do you think this is the first time I inquired of God for David? Is that really what you think? No, Saul. No, let, let the king impute anything on his servant to all, all these things that I did. For your servant knows nothing of all that you're charging against me, whether it be much or little, our text tells us. So let's hear. This is a hymn like not only defending David and his credentials, he's also defending himself and really all the other priests of Nob. Like he, he's telling to Saul, he's like, hey, David showed up, and we're just doing the things that we normally do. We're doing part of our normally priestly activity. We're not trying to spire, conspire against you, Saul. Which here, while I agree, I don't necessarily think that Ahimelech was like going out of his way trying to conspire against Saul. I do think the priest is maybe not fully letting on how much he knew was happening with David. You may remember in the previous chapter, even though David was very vague on why he showed up in Nob in that day, like he didn't share any details, hopefully to keep Ahimelech ignorant, out of trouble. But as you may remember, when David showed up, the king was trembling with fear, with anxiety. Like he, he seemed to not be like completely naive to Saul's thoughts concerning David. And whatever, either way, however forthright and honest Amalek was with his response to Saul, verse 16 of our text, Saul bought none of it. As mentioned, he seemed like he already had a predetermined verdict for the case. So Saul declares to the priest a guilty verdict, which is a judgment, which was with a judgment that was a most severe of judgments. Ahimelech, you will surely die for what you did for David. And Ahimelech, not only will you surely die, our text tells us that all of your father's household will die alongside of you. Like this is how evil Saul had become. How far his desire for control had taken him. How his paranoia was spiraling out of control. He's like feeling the kingdom slipping out of his fingers. So he's like willing to slaughter all of Himlech's household in order to try to keep it. Like spiraling into deeper and deeper, darker and darker sin. 
He is so far different from where he was at the start of his reign. The text, Saul gave the death sentence in verse 17. If you want to take your eyes there. He turns to the guard. He gives orders to the guard. Hey, guard, turn, kill the priest of the Lord. And kill him because David, because they, how they cared for David, because they knew what David did when he fled from me and didn't tell me about it. And just notice here that as Saul goes to the guard, he even recognized that the priests were the ones who were with the Lord. See how it says in the text? Like they're priests of the Lord. Yet he doesn't care. So self-centered, so self-focused, so obsessed with power, like not even the Lord would stand in his way. No fear of God. However, in the text, even though Saul gave this order to the guard, we see the guard actually did fear the Lord. And he feared the Lord even more than he feared King Saul. So he responds back to the king, uh, no. No, Saul, I will not follow your orders. I will not put a hand to strike the priest of the Lord. I will not go along with your evil, murderous ways. Which, can you imagine the courage of the guard to say no to the king? To stand up to do what's right? There's no doubt the guard fully knew, with him saying no to Saul, that the same act of treason... The same verdict of death, guilty by death, that could have came to him as well. In the text, Saul heard the response from the guard. He wasn't deterred from getting what he wanted. It didn't cause him to slow down, to reconsider his actions. Rather, in verse 18, he simply turns back to Deweg, the Edomite, trusting that this man would do his dirty work, to turn and strike down the priest. And by the way, notice that Deweg is referred to Deweg, the Edomite, multiple times in our text. The author here is stressing a point of how far Saul continues to fall. Where he kept going back to the pagan Edomite for counsel, where he continued to reject any and all godly counsel. As Duag was given the orders from Saul, we see a Duag responds without delay, and he turns and strikes down the priest in an act of sinful, evil murder. We see this actually wasn't just a murder of one man, it was actually it was a mass murder. So the text tells that Duwag struck down 85 priests who wore the linen ephod, which is a special garment the priests would wear in the Old Testament. Verse 19, we see this evil mass murder actually didn't even stop with the 85 because Duwag actually made his way back to Nob and throughout the entire city he put the sword to men and women, children and infants, ox, donkey, and sheep. The text tells that all were put to death. Mass murder. An awful act of evil. A devastating tragedy. And just to circle back, it was mentioned in the intro, this is the backstory of so many of the Psalms. So when David wrote about evil men seeking to take his life, he's not referring to like hyperbole here, using hyperbole. This is not some type of a clever rhetoric to try to communicate a point. Like these were evil men. This is incredibly awful, evil acts by Saul and his henchmen. One that shook David to the core. Finally, this morning, our text ends, starting verse 20. We see that one of the sons of Hamelech was able to escape the evil murder of Duag. And as he escaped, he was able to flee to David and tell David the awful tragedy that just took place. Verse 22, if you take your eyes there. As the news report fell on David's ears, while no doubt David was heartbroken by this news, it was not surprising to him. 
as he told the young priest, you know, I knew. I just knew. On that day when that evil man, Duig, the Edomite, spotted me at Nob with the priest, I knew he was going to tell Saul. You know, David clearly was not intending for any of this to happen, even though it says clearly all on Saul. For David, he's, he's so shook here. Because in our text tells he felt that he caused the occasion for the death of all the person in Abathar's house. So again, this is, this is the backstory to so many Psalms. You know, David just feeling overwhelming, this overwhelming burden of what took place. Just completely heartbroken, completely devastated by the evil around him. I mean, just think how crippling this must have been for David to try to process through this. There's no doubt he had feelings of guilt and shame just are weighing heavy on him, even though this really wasn't his fault. I'm sure he probably had some, some type of survivor's guilt because of this. Can you imagine like the levels of PTSD he probably had to go through because of what Saul just did for this mass murder? The text is David and Abathar talked. David ended our text today, the scene, by inviting uh, Abathar to stay with him, to give him words of comfort. Listen, I know this is awful. But do not be afraid of Saul. Do not be afraid of the one who's seeking to take your life. Because I'm going to promise to protect you. David promised the young priest that he would be in his safe keeping. And that ends our text today. Now, for the rest of the time here, real quickly, I just want to give us some thoughts of application from this passage, which is really an awful passage. Some of it will be drawing from the text, but some of it, as mentioned, will be drawing from the Psalms that were written during the time period of when uh, this occurred, which actually is the first application I have for us in our text today. So first, we can and should be honest when life is difficult. Now, does it mean that we need to be whiners or complainers, which certainly is an issue in our society? But that being said, we should be honest when life just is not right, when things are difficult. That is one of the great takeaways of the book of Psalms, including the Psalms written during this scene. David, he's honest in the Psalms. He's even vulnerable in the Psalms with how difficult and painful life was for him as evil men were seeking to hunt him down. Let's be honest, life is not always rosy. I'm sure today, just in this room, some of you are facing some real challenges where you have real painful difficulties that you're trying to walk in right now. And friend, if that's you, let me give you some words of encouragement. You can be honest about them. You can be honest with yourself. You can be honest to others about them. And even more importantly, you can be honest to the Lord. Where you can go to him with all of your concerns of how hard and difficult life might feel right now. Keep saying that that is the application for so many psalms. So many psalms that David and other psalm writers wrote. They're just being honest, raw, vulnerable before the Lord and how difficult life at times might feel. And if you're struggling to know how to be honest before the Lord in light of our passage today, let me just encourage you, just go to Psalm 27. It was written during this time. Psalm 52, written during this time. Read those psalms. Let them know how to be honest. You know how to be honest with the Lord. Let David's words even be your words. Even Psalm 57, which we'll get to more in just a bit, was also written during this time. This is a great one to teach us how to be honest before the Lord with the difficulties of life. Second, we should let others into their difficulties of life. 
Now, at the start of our passage today, our passage last week in verse 21, right, David was isolated. And he wasn't making the best, wisest decisions when he was isolated on the run. Right? He went to go to his enemies. He goes to this cave in Saul's territory. Right? Probably not the best decisions. However, David's isolations, I would guess, were not by choice, but by necessity. Like, Saul forced him into isolation. That's probably different from most of us when life is difficult. We're more likely, we isolate ourselves not by force, but actually by choice. And that's not good. And actually, I think it's becoming more and more of a trend in our society. We're more and more, by choice, we are isolating ourselves from others. We're obsessively scrolling social media, or we're constantly listening to podcasts, or we're taking hours upon hours to do video games, or endless wormholes of internet searching. Like, it is isolating. Friends, however we end up isolated, it's, it's not good. And we can't be content to stay in isolation. We will not make good, wise, God-honoring decisions. Friends, we need community. God has designed us to live in community. And one of the reasons why? Because community can help us. Community can be a source of healing balm the challenges of life. Community can be there to help carry burdens, to strengthen us and encourage us. That's what we see in our text today. As mentioned, David was isolated, not making the best decisions, on the run, overwhelmed with fear, worry, anxiety. But then his family, his supporters, community, they arrived on the scene. This is a breath of fresh air for him that strengthened him, strengthened his confidence in the Lord. Friend, don't isolate yourself from others. Rather, connect with others in community. Third, at times we need to seek rest from difficulties. And here, I actually mean like literal rest. We're like intentionally pulling back for an extended period of time to rest, to recharge, to get perspective. So we also know this, we live in a burnout culture where we are always on the go, where we have little to no margin. And friends, that's not good. That's not healthy. When we live with no margin, I don't think that actually honors the Lord. When we are always on the go, 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 I actually think it's an issue of control. We're not trusting in God. In our text, David clearly was not right. He had a lot of legitimate reasons to not be right. So God, in his grace, provided for David rest in Moab. Real rest. And I get the sense, extended rest, that he really needed. I think he heard you here. This is you. If you're living at a burnout pace, no margin in your life, I encourage you to plan and budget to find rest, to create margin for rest in your life, to maybe try to step away from things that maybe you're sinfully trying to control. So it's life is it's too difficult for us to always be going, 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 going. God has created us to have rhythms of rest. Fourth, at times we actually need to be pushed out from our difficulties, which is actually kind of the other side of things. Where times life can be so hard, perhaps so traumatic, we're tempted to like completely pull away. Maybe pull away out of fear that re-engagement will inevitably lead to hurt and pain. And for those of us here who have past hurt, past pain, past scars from life, maybe your own level of PTSD, you know it's really hard to re-engage when you're on the run. So in our text, yes, David got rest. 
a season of rest that he needed. But he didn't stay in that season of rest permanently. The prophet Gad came to him, pushed him out of safety in Moab to depart, head back to Judah. And just think how much of a step of faith that had to be for David to do. After all, he is heading back into danger. Friend, if that's you this morning, where the difficulties of life have been such, you're almost like crippled by fear, crippled, just so worried about re-engaging. If I can, with the spirit of gentleness, can I invite you to take a step of faith, trust in the Lord, and re-engage with others in meaningful ways, where for the glory of God you're seeking to serve and care for others with your gifts, your abilities, the opportunities God has given to you. Yes, we need rest, but this is not a permanent rest. It's a rest to get us back up. Last one. Fifth. At all times. At all times. We need safekeeping, which is how our text ends. And not just safekeeping from the difficulties of life, but we actually all need safekeeping from the just judgment of God, which is a just judgment that is very different than Saul's unjust evil judgment. God's just judgment is one that burns over our sin that we are all guilty of. We all have sinned. And friends, the safekeeping from sin that we need at all times is found and only found in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second member of the Blessed Trinity. And the reason why Jesus Christ is our safekeeping that we need at all times because according to God's eternal plan, a plan to put out his love and mercy and kindness on display, He sent his son to become fully man, who was born of a virgin of Mary, who lived a perfect life, who although was sinless, became sin for us, to take on the punishment of our sin, which he did not by sitting under a tree with a spear in hand, rather by being nailed to a tree where spears actually run through his side. Yet it was on that tree, on the cross, that Jesus, in our place, died in order to be our safekeeping He died to take on the punishment of our sin upon himself. But not only did he die, but friends, the good news is on the third day, he rose again from the dead. So that by faith, all, including all here today, all who turn to Jesus, who seek to find refuge, safekeeping in Jesus, you will find it if by faith you turn to him. You will find eternal forgiveness, eternal mercy, by the way, is actually the cry of Psalm 57, which it was written during the backstory of our text today. That's what Psalm 57 says. It says, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul take refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms and destructions pass by. I will cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills his purposes in me, and he will send from heaven and save me, which he did to the Lord Jesus Christ. So friends, this morning as I close, no matter your personal backstory, no matter how painful, difficult, maybe dark it might feel, the promise is, to say it again, if you run to Jesus for mercy, you will find it. And as the old song sings that I started out this sermon with, your sin, not in part, but in whole, is nailed to the cross so that you will bear it no more. 
friends, in the end, whether it be Samuel, 1 Samuel 22, the Psalms, any other portion of Scripture, the backstory was always teaching us is to run to Jesus for safekeeping so that through him, for all eternity, we can sing, it is well, it is well, it is well with my soul. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Lord, thank you that in the end, Jesus is our safe keeper. And he is the refuge for our soul. And Lord, sometimes life is just really difficult. And so, Lord, I pray for those here this morning who are carrying that difficulty. Lord, I pray that in Jesus they would find healing balm for their soul. I pray so in Jesus' name. Amen.